Thanks for listening to the Half Hour of Heterodoxy podcast. I'm Chris Martin. My guest today is Fabio Rojas. He's a professor of sociology at Indiana University at Bloomington. He's the author of From Black Power to Black Studies, How a Radical Social Movement Became an Academic Discipline, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, and more recently, Theory for the Working Sociologist, published by Columbia University Press. He also has a short ebook called Grad School Rules, Everything You Need to Know About Academia from Admissions to Tenure. He's currently the editor of Contexts, a general sociology journal, and he's the editor of Org Theory, a blog about sociology. Hi, Fabio. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's getting hot here in Georgia. How's it in Indiana? It's very nice today. It's a perfect spring day. My one visit to Indiana was in June, and it was beautiful. Indeed. And on a side note, my graduation brochure from William and Mary, my graduation program rather, cites me as being from Pune, Indiana, rather than Pune, India. So I'm an honorary Indianan. Ah, <laughs> well, it gets more complicated than that. There's a town in Indiana called Hindustan, Indiana. Wow. Yes. So there's a lot of kind of a cultural borrowing between the Midwest and other parts of the world. Well, Georgia too. Georgia has Rome, Athens, a few other places. We've got uh, Dublin. Anyway, jumping to sociology, I thought we'd start by talking about your first book about social movements and universities. Tell me a bit about that book and what made you think about studying that topic. Yeah, absolutely. The first book is called From Black Power to Black Studies, How Radical Social Movement Became an Academic Discipline. It was published in 2007 by the Johns Hopkins University Press. And the book, roughly speaking, is a historical account of how black student activists mobilized for ethnic studies in the 1960s and an exploration of why some programs were stable and why some of them were not. And that story is intrinsically interesting. It's a story of student activism, civil rights, black power, and uh, racial desegregation. It's also a story that is relevant to people who care about social movements because we really care about what the outcome is. We care about whether the movement has a durable outcome or whether the outcome just goes away after a couple of months or a year. And so studying student activists within the university is a really great way to get into that topic. And to summarize a couple of major points of the book, um, there are a couple of uh, points. One is that uh, students were way more successful uh, when they protested rather than doing nothing. Uh, so often people will talk about things but not do anything, but the data shows that actually activism works. So the ones who weren't protesting were literally doing nothing, or were they doing something else? Well, in, in an article in Social Forces in 2006, which was partially reprinted in the book, uh, what I did was I looked at uh, the sample of all um, four-year colleges and universities in the country. Then I had undergraduate research assistants look through the New York Times for every incident of black student activism on that campus from 1968 to 1998. And I had them coded in uh, three, three ways. In that year for that campus, uh, nothing could happen. There were no reported events in the media. Doesn't mean that there were not any events, but none reported in the media. There were events uh, that were reported in media, and I coded those as being either um, disruptive or non-disruptive. 
with uh, non-disruptive things being like meetings or rallies or uh, requests for social change, with disruptive things being things like having fights, destroying property, uh, burning cars, and that sort of stuff. Okay. And all th- in all three things happened. Some a lot of campuses didn't have any protests that made it to the uh, national media. Some had very mellow protests, where it was mainly in the form of you know just asking for things and having rallies. And then there were uh, definitely cases where people uh, chose violence or disruptiveness in order to make their point. And one of the big lessons of the research is that um, doing something definitely gets you uh, results, but you have to do it in a nonviolent and relatively non-disruptive way. And one of the things I argue in the book and in related articles is that when you become violent or disruptive as a protester in a democratic society, uh, you become delegitimized. Uh, what that means is that pe- when people look at you and they see you getting arrested or they see you you know, uh, throwing a brick through a window, they say, that's not the kind of person I want to associate with. That person's really bad. Um, and then case after case, and also in the statistical data, we see a systematic difference between uh, movement activities that are uh, non-disruptive and those that are. And uh, the ones that are disruptive are statistically uh, identical to uh, not doing protests at all. So it's so counterproductive that you might as well not have done anything in the data set. And then uh, the second half of the book is really uh, discussing with a lot of historical case studies why certain black studies programs succeeded, why some of them went away. And a really big part of it is that you need people on the inside of the institution who understand how the institution works. Uh, One way to uh, summarize the argument is to say it's about the difference between the logic of protest and the logic of the institution. So if you're a movement and you're trying to create change in an organization like a university, you have to understand how that organization works. Otherwise, you're going to make all kinds of mistakes that undermine uh, whatever victories you may have gained. And so that's also a really big lesson of the book. So essentially, academia has a particular culture, and you have to understand the unwritten rules. You have to be a lay sociologist in a way. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a great way of saying it, that you have to really, uh, whether you're in a corporation, a church, a university, each of those uh, social domains has its own rules of conduct, its own values, its own things that you can do and not do. And if you don't understand those things, your movement can come to a grinding halt, even after being successful in staging a protest. Now, when people did not follow those rules, do you think they didn't know about them, or do you thought do you think they w- thought they would be more effective if they violated those rules, and that would make a statement? Well, I think it, the story's a little bit complicated. So, for example, uh, if you were to um, ask a typical undergraduate, "What do you need to get tenure at a university?" most of them wouldn't know. Right. So, if in this particular case, one of the things they were asking for was to have a Department of Black Studies or African American Studies. And that means, you know, creating tenure lines, creating courses, writing budgets. So, and those are things you have to master in order to have a successful and vibrant academic program. So, if your students um, don't even know about it, that's one problem. Uh, another issue is they, uh, a lot of activists see these as kind of uh, not relevant to what they're doing. And this comes up a lot in the early history of black studies where people would say things like, you know, I'm really trying to represent a certain population or a certain community, and uh, I don't want to waste my time with the uh, finer points of academia, right? Like, I don't want to deal with journals, or I don't want to deal with this or that. Instead, this is really about activism and social change. And uh, in that case, that's where a person may have known about the rules and just decide it wasn't in their uh, best interest. Uh, Then, of course, there are cases where people are trying to follow the rules, but they're just not very skilled at it. 
Uh, so, for example, in one of the chapters of the book, I discuss a little bit about academic programs where uh, people didn't get tenure or they weren't able to get published. And that's the case where they knew what the rules of the game were, but they weren't as skilled at it as other people. And the um, activists and scholars who ended up really developing good uh, at Black Studies programs tended to be those people who had a lot of energy, but also had a very deep appreciation for what academia is as a culture. Uh, the second thing you said is interesting, the point about activists knowing but not wanting to do those things, because I interviewed David Frum a few weeks ago, and he said something similar to what uh, Alice Drager said in an article, which is that if you want to be an effective activist, you have to be willing to do some things that are boring, and you need to be willing to think about specifically what you want to achieve and put that in measurable terms, um, essentially do things that don't feel fulfilling on the surface. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And uh, actually, on this very day, I'm working on one of my own personal uh, political issues, which is immigration reform. Uh, you may know that that's one of my big topics. Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, there's a lot of unglamorous work that goes behind uh, getting a speaker on the topic and finding a place to have the speaker and getting the funds. And um, as somebody who's uh, in his mid-40s, I've done these things before, and I already know that they're very unsatisfying, to use your terms, but they're extremely necessary. You know, So if I want an event that looks good, where people uh, get informed and whatnot, then that means I have to play by certain rules of the game, and it behooves me to learn those rules and to uh, really apply them in the best way that I can. Right. This reminds me of Eli Finkel's book on relationships and how in modern relationships we're looking for, um, how does he put it, self-actualization. And I think sometimes people expect constant self-actualization from participating in social movements. I mean, maybe that's a hypothesis, could be false. Well, you know, uh, the um, scholar James Jasper, um, a very uh, well-respected and eminent scholar of social movements, has actually written multiple books on emotions in social movements. And, um, you know, I think one of the more interesting arguments that he uh, makes is that these uh, forms of self-actualization or expressiveness are part of the normal life of po politics. Because, uh, you know, if your entire life was doing boring things, then I think a lot of people would have a tough time getting into it. So you need some kind of back and forth. You need moments where you're very happy and uh, f fulfilled, and that helps you get through the times where you're dealing with budgets and university committees and offices that don't always respond to your emails. Definitely. So it is a bit like marriage. Indeed. With hopefully excellent results. Hopefully. Fortunately, marriage comes with no committee work. <laughs> Maybe in-laws are kind of like committees. I don't know. <laughs> I really like my in-laws. Um, you and I are both lucky. We are. We are indeed. So jumping to more recent work you've done, you gave a talk at Wellesley. Uh, you gave two talks at Wellesley, rather. It was part of the project that ended up being kind of controversial because some of the funding came from the Koch brothers, but your talks didn't have anything to do with the Koch brothers per se. So tell me a bit about what your talks were about and how they were received. Sure. So a little background for your uh, listeners. Um, Tom Cushman is a, a sociologist at Wellesley College. He's a very noted scholar of human rights. Uh, especially in Bosnia and in that part of the world. And a couple of years ago, he created a center called the Freedom Center, where he would invite people to give talks and lectures and kind of hang out and talk about issues relating to political and social freedoms. 
Um, and as you noted, uh, part of it, uh, part of the funding comes from the uh, Koch, uh, Koch Foundations, uh, and he has other funders as well. And twice I was invited to uh, speak at his uh, workshop, which happens between the uh, fall and spring uh, semesters at Wellesley College. And I came and I spoke about two topics. I, uh, I was asked to, to speak on the topic of whether social movements are good or bad for freedom. And then I also was invited to speak about open borders, the idea that people should be allowed to migrate between countries peacefully without any hindrance or, uh, or obstacle. Um, and in the first talk, I basically argued that social movements are mixed for freedom. Some of them lead to great freedoms. Some of them lead to disaster. And so I, I don't think that activism or the social protest is a silver bullet that solves all problems. Instead, you have to really think about the ideology of the movement, what do they want, the kinds of tactics that they uh, tend to use. Um, and that's very important in assessing whether that movement would really enhance uh, individual autonomy. Um, then in the second talk, I was invited to speak about open borders because that's something I do a lot of organizing around and speaking and writing about. And there I presented uh, arg arguments for open borders from different political perspectives. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, you could ask, what's the academic perspective? And, you know, my argument is that most of the academic literature shows very positive benefits of migration to both the migrant and the country that they move to. I also uh, talk about this from an ideological perspective. So, for example, I will say that liberals should be uh, in favor of open borders because it is a policy that helps the poorest people. You know, the fastest way to solve poverty is to move to a place where people aren't quite as poor. Uh, conservatives should definitely be for open borders because restricting borders is a way of restricting free markets. It's a way of splitting up families. So all the a lot of things that conservatives believe are violated when you restrict migration. And when I gave these talks, um, it was to a workshop of maybe about 15 to 20 Wellesley undergraduates. Uh, Wellesley College is one of the most uh, selective colleges in the entire country. They have some of the very best students in the entire country. So it was a real pleasure to uh, debate these issues. And some people disagreed with me. Some of them agreed, some of them disagreed. And I thought we had a very uh, productive conversation. And also, when you visit their uh, winter workshop, you get to hang out for the day and see other professors speak. So, for example, there was a professor, she, a philosopher from Wellesley, who argued against free speech on campus. She argued against a broad notion of freedom. There was an, uh, a professor named Nadia Haj in the political science department who gave a talk on Palestinian property rights and how you know forms of economic freedom are cultivated even in the very difficult situation that Palestinians find themselves in. So uh, that was uh, my visit to the Freedom Center. I thought it was a very positive experience, and I really hope the students uh, enjoyed my uh, conversation and discussion with them. On the issue of activism, your first talk, did you get any interesting questions from student activists or did there happen to be any student activists in the audience? Well, that's a really great question um, because um, a lot of students at Wellesley are involved in politics on some level. So for example, uh, a lot of them were involved in the Hillary Clinton for president campaign. Um, a number of them had other issues. Some of them were just not that political, and this is the first time they really thought about these issues. Um, so in terms of what they thought about activism, um, I think that was, of the two talks that I gave, I think that was the talk that uh, seemed most sensible and straightforward to them. Um, and uh, I think people you know, appreciated the point 
that activism varies like anything else. Like there's some activists where you, you listen to them and you hear what they want changed and you say, that sounds like a really reasonable thing to demand. Um, and then uh, in history, we've seen some really uh, um, authoritarian movements, some really violent movements, and we should be aware of that, that not everybody who says I'm an activist is automatically a good guy. You actually have to see what they have to say and you have to judge their behavior. And the person who presented against free speech, sorry, I've forgotten her name, but uh, you being there, did you have any questions for her? I know you've written one blog post on org theory defending Charles Murray's right to speak at Indiana University. So was she, she suggesting that people like Charles Murray not be allowed to speak? Um, let's see. Uh, I saw her talk two years ago, so I will preface. I will apologize in advance if I make any mistakes in her argument. But I, but my memory of the talk is that she uh, believes that some forms of speech could be harmful, that they would be disruptive to a college environment, um, that places like Wellesley College provide a um, you might call a haven. Um, for people to uh, to learn in a stress-free environment. Like, for example, who... So the example, you know, one might uh, raise uh, in defending her uh, point of view is to say, you know, how many uh, Jewish students would appreciate going to a campus with uh, Nazi symbolism all over the place? I think people would be very justifiably upset about that. So from that perspective, she uh, argued that free speech is not absolute, that in fact it should have some re restrictions. Um and uh, since this was a talk for the students, I didn't believe I didn't believe at the time that was my place to really raise my hand um, and really, um, you know, argue with her in class, even though we did have a discussion over dinner later that was quite spirited. And, um, you know, my response to her style of argument is to say, you know, people are a lot tougher than we expect. Uh, they can listen to a wider range of things. Uh, that then you might um, you might admit uh, another issue is that colleges and universities exist in order to promote debate and discussion. So that means that we should be tolerant of things that may upset us and whatnot, and that can be done in a scholarly fashion. So it doesn't mean that we're gonna you know walk around with a bullhorn and scream at people. That's not what we're saying. But we could have a seminar discussion or a public lecture or have a book reading about a controversial issue and we can do it in a very professional way and that enriches everybody and it's also consistent with our culture in the united states which is that we really believe that people are autonomous they have the right to think uh, certain thoughts even if they're in error even if they're mistaken as long as they don't publicly uh, or privately advocate violence towards other people we should be highly tolerant of people um and so that was uh, my response to, uh, to her. And I brought this up a little bit later informally, um, but in the class, I did not, I don't remember having raised it because I was not a student. I was kind of a visitor in the back row, just uh, enjoying her presentation. I think some people think Heterodox Academy's a free speech absolutist organization, and it's interesting. I don't know if anyone involved with Heterodox Academy really is a free speech absolutist, but I think most of us share the perspective that you have, which is that a lot of people, um, including underrepresented minorities, have the capacity to listen to controversial arguments about race and gender and immigration and discrimination and a, a number of topics. Uh, I think one thing that people who work on campuses also need to consider is that when you allow authorities to censor, then 
they may eventually censor you for some reason in the future, and you may not foresee that happening, but it could happen. So there's an element of the golden rule as well. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. And one thing that, um, you know, people say to me, they say, you know, um, we have a speaker on campus. Do you agree or disagree with him? Do you think that person should be banned? And I, I one thing I really say in response is, look, would you like a committee of professors or students to dictate what you can say, to dictate, to get an approval for which speaker you can bring into a classroom? or what books you can assign for a syllabus, you know, that's a very dangerous road to go down. And I think um, people are confusing two things, which is uh, um, the fact that some people have genuinely bad ideas. That's an issue. But also, uh, they think that the way to respond to that is to not let those ideas be expressed and debated and uh, pulled apart and discussed. And I think that's the real mistake here, um, because even if I did believe, and I do not believe uh, in the theory that you know, just because you say a bad idea doesn't means that it will happen or be legitimized. Uh, but even if I did agree with that, I would be very worried about having a committee of professors or deans or students to sit around and pass judgment on what uh, somebody in the English department can teach or what a student group on campus can do. You know, they would, I really think they should only intervene in a very unusual cases. Uh, and so a controversial scholar like uh, Charles Murray, uh, I may agree or disagree with what he says, but I think he certainly has the right to give a talk and people have the right to disagree. Um, and I don't think he should be shouted down and yelled at. He should be allowed to, to be a guest of a person at the university in a peaceful manner. On that note, I have an article coming up. Um, I don't know where it's going to be published yet, but it's a set of three or four sensible guidelines for how to have how to decide on a policy or how to decide whether a speaker uh, should be should be allowed on campus. And I think one sensible rule is: was it a faculty member or a student group who invited the speaker? Because faculty have academic freedom, and by virtue of that academic freedom. If they invite someone like Charles Murray, they should definitely be allowed to bring them on campus. But um, I thought we'd jump to a different topic before we run out of time, which is the the topic of Heterodox Academy itself. Sure. At Heterodox Academy, we've argued that one benefit of having more centrists and conservatives and liberals, uh, sorry, libertarians in academia is that liberals will understand those philosophies better and actually be more effective in their own activism. What's your opinion on this perspective? Well, it depends on what you mean by successful. Uh, so, for example, you can win an election, uh, you can be a politician without ever really understanding the other side, right? Right. And in questions of pure power um, or pure political influence, you know, you might not care what the other person has to say. You just want, want to win a fight. However, um, that's not my personal ethic. I don't think that's a good ethical stance. Um, and especially it's, a, it's antithetical to what universities stand for, which is the truth on some, however you define that. And so one way to think, not the only way, but one way to think about the quality of your argument is to say, would somebody believe this if they didn't, would somebody believe what I am saying if they didn't already believe it to begin with? Right. Right. So in other words, if I just say Trump is great, get lost, 
that's not an argument, right? You know, you, you'd only believe that if you already liked the president. Um, but instead, if I said, well, you know, he's proposing policies X, Y, and Z, which are bad in this way and that way, then um, that's an argument that's better. And I think what acad- academics, uh, scholars and professors should strive for is presenting high quality arguments. So one reason to engage people who are not like yourself is to you know, have an argument that somebody might buy if they didn't already agree with you. And I think that's one valuable thing about Heterodox Academy, which is that it's not taking a side from what I understand. I don't think it takes a side. It doesn't say you have to be this or that. But instead of saying, let's have a little bit of heterogeneity, there's definitely a range of opinions that are worth thinking about and talking about. And by having that, then you can get to a point where you could say, yeah, I think somebody who didn't already agree with me might find this an interesting argument. And that's a good thing. And when you were researching activism, did you get a sense that activists were, so we already talked about rules and how an understanding of implicit rules was helpful, but did you get a sense that activists were also more effective if they understood the ideology of the people they were um, arguing against or the people who were resisting their claims? Well, uh, once again, it, it depends on what you're looking for. So, for example, um, you know, if you want to get on the news and you want to project yourself into the media, then sometimes all you have to do is to yell as loud as you can and ignore the other side. So, for example, um, the uh, controversial speaker, uh, Milo, I always forget his last name. He has a long last name. Yeah, he goes by, uh, well, he uses the last name Yiannopoulos, but his actual last name is Harahan. He just wanted to add something exotic, so that's his stage name. Okay, so... uh, Mr. Harahan or uh, Yiannopoulos, um, you know, he trucks and barters and controversy. And it's not entirely clear to me that he's interested in, in real actual debate, right? Right. So he succeeds in getting a paycheck. He succeeds in getting on TV, but he may not um, succeed in making the world a better place, which is to find the highest quality arguments for different positions. And you can only do that by really sitting down and thinking about what somebody else has to say and what's the right part of that and what's the wrong part of that. And I think activism is the same. So if you want to get on TV, yelling as loud as you can is a great way to do it. But for example, if you really want to, say, start an academic program, if you really want to influence some group of policymakers, you have to think about their world, what they're trying to accomplish, think about people on the other side. And that's when you can um, you know, really uh, make some progress. And you contributed one blog post to Heterodox Academy uh, several years ago. It was a summary of a contribution you made to a book edited by Neil Gross. Are you planning to write anything in the near future uh, about academic freedom or ideology in the in the academy? Well, actually, yes, there is an upcoming, uh, it's just accepted, uh, Sociology Compass. It's a journal that um, asks scholars to review certain areas of research and to comment on them. Uh, with two of my co-authors, Jelani Ince and Brendan, uh, Brandon Finlay of Indiana University, we have an article that uh, surveys uh, student activism from the left and the right. Uh, we talk a little bit about things like free speech controversies um, as parts of modern student activism. So it's definitely an issue I continue to think about. Uh, listeners can check out my book on student activism, the Black Studies book, my other writings, and they can check out that Sociology Compass article. Great. When does that come out? It should come out sometime next, uh, about a year from now, maybe a little bit less. Depends on how fast journals go. Okay. Is there a preprint available online at the moment? Um, no, it was literally just accepted the other day. So uh, 
listeners are invited to email me. I'll be happy to share a copy. But also recently at the James G. Martin Center, I had an article, an op-ed called Defining Faculty Roles, Scholarship First, Activism Second, where I argue that uh, you have to be careful when it comes to mixing activism and scholarship. It is true that scholars do have a role to play in public. They have ideas. They do research on things that matters. But on the other hand, you don't want to let your personal politics swamp or overshadow your role as a researcher and a classroom teacher. So that is called uh, Defining Faculty Roles, Scholarship First, Activism Second. And uh, the James G. Martin Center also published responses to that article from the AAUP and by their own staff. I wasn't familiar with that article, so I'll have to check it out myself. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a very interesting debate. So do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap things up? Um, I just want the university to be a place where people really seriously listen to each other, even if they're not, uh, even if they don't or already share the same perspective or ideas. On that note, thank you for joining us. And um, thanks for being part of Heterodox Academy. It's been good talking to you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Fabio is on Twitter at Fabio Rojas. Rojas is spelled R-O-J-A-S. You can also find out more about Fabio at his homepage on Indiana University's website and his blog Org Theory at orgtheory.wordpress.com. His email address is frojas at indiana.edu. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy Two Psychologists, Four Beers. It's a podcast about controversies in science, hosted by Yoel Inbar and Michael Inslicht. Episodes one and three of their podcasts are about the campus free speech crisis and the intellectual dark web. They are both members of Heterodox Academy, but their podcast is self-produced. It's not produced by Heterodox Academy. My next guest will be Canadian professor Rick Mehta. I'll also have upcoming episodes with Zachary Wood and Jessica Good, social psychologist at Davidson College. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.